Today's podcast delivered by Australia Post. They put everything behind your business. And with My Post Business, you can save at least 10% when sending on average five eligible parcels a week. Get more info and see the terms and conditions at auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast. Now, time for the show. Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan from Business Insider, and I'm here as always with David Scott. Fantastic to be back. And our guest this week, one of our favourite regulars on the show, is Shane Oliver, Chief Economist and Chief Investment Officer at AMP Capital. Shane, welcome back. Great to be here. It's great to have you here on again. Um, on the agenda this week, it has been another uh, pretty volatile week on markets, and uh, there's probably another one waiting in the wings for us uh, next week. We're going to look at the domestic uh, outlook for Australia. Um, been a few um, slightly troubling signs here on the GDP data um, over recent weeks, so we'll look at that data and what it might mean for the year ahead as well, um, both for the RBA and for the federal budget bottom line. Uh, we're going to look at the action in commodities markets. Um, there have been some spectacular price moves uh, even on a, a daily basis in, uh, in recent weeks. And we've also had a very important uh, OPEC meeting uh, where they agreed on something for a change, uh, which was a small cut to production. Um, and there's another, as I mentioned, important political risk coming up, uh, and that is the Italian referendum on Sunday in Europe, which will know the results of Monday uh, in Australia. Uh, so we'll look at what all of that means. Um, and then also recently, uh, Shane had a, uh, a very interesting note out uh, to, uh, to clients about uh, some of the common mistakes that investors make. Uh, so if we get time at the end, uh, we'll have a look at some of those because they're very interesting. But uh, first, to the situation here at home in Australia. Some analysts are now talking uh, about a possible sighting of one of those incredibly rare beasts in the Australian economic ecosystem, and that's a negative uh, quarter of GDP growth. So we're recording on Thursday, uh, and we just got the, the capital expenditure uh, data from the Australian Bureau of Statistics. Another weak number, this has been a series that uh, has been um, you know, consistently weak uh, as we've come off the mining boom. Um, but uh, just to just the headline figure, the fourth estimate, which is the one that the RBA tries to point everybody towards, there was an, a market expectation of a lift to about $110 billion um, and it came in at 107 uh, billion, again weaker than expected. And then critically, um, there's a key number in there, which is um, for equipment, plant, and machinery, uh, which actually feeds into the national accounts of the GDP print, uh, and that fell by 1.9% uh, to 12.4 billion. Shane, you've been looking at this today. The capex series, as I said, been weak. Um, where does this stand in terms of that series and, and, um, and is it, does it continue to trouble you, the, the level of business investment that we're seeing? Uh, it certainly troubles me, um, but as you say, it's been weak for some years now and occasionally we have ch we've had chinks of light uh, peering, peering through the end of the tunnel, uh, particularly for non-mining investment, um, but this wasn't one of those quarters. In fact, the non-mining numbers were also on the soft side, so it was a fairly broad-based weakness. Um, but by the same token, a lot of that weakness has been driven by the mining sector. Um, you know, you, for example, the expectations for this financial year, depending on how you look at it, down 30-odd percent, 34-35 percent for the mining sector, whereas depending on how you look at it for non-mining, that's manufacturing and what they call other industries, it's either down slightly or up slightly. Um, so it's not a complete disaster. I, I guess the other positive piece of news in there 
is that mining investment as a share of GDP is getting smaller and smaller and smaller, and therefore when it keeps falling at 30% per annum, its impact on the economy gets less and less and less. And we're also getting back to the, the normal range that it used to be in. In about a year's time or so, the, the level of mining investment as a share of GDP will be around 2%. That's down from 7-odd percent. I think the RBA recently said 9%. So you would have got back to the normal range, and therefore the, the further downside from there will be limited, I think, in any, way. in any case. If it does get falling, the impact on the economy will be less. But the more immediate issue, of course, is that these weak CapEx numbers come on the back of what's likely to be soft uh, export figures, soft, soft trade figures for the quarter, and soft consumer spending. And that's why there's this talk of a potential negative quarter. Um, David, uh, you were looking at these numbers this morning. Um, what was your take? Fairly disappointing, uh, but not all that unsurprising, to be honest. Uh, it does, the one thing I'm starting to go and become much more aware about is just the impact in GDP. And uh, it's the start off with a trickle of economists who are starting to talk about the potential for a negative GDP print. Now that we're seeing the other uh, plant and equipment and machinery figure going uh, and drop, I think it was 1.9% during the quarter. Now that's going to, according to I think ANZ, so it's going to slice off another 0.1 of a percentage point. Uh, from GDP, all of this goes and adds up on top of what we've seen already with uh, weak retail sales volumes, which is about 30% of household consumption. Uh, and then we saw construction work done as well, which is also part of today's report we saw with the weak uh, building and structures figure. That was well below expectations and would track as well. Um, you put all those things together, it's, uh, it's a little unsettling to what happened in the, the September quarter. And of course, um, this capital investment, uh, you know, we're not just talking about um, buying machines here and that, you know, because obviously you get, you know, huge sums of money spent on um, some uh, types of machines, even when it's for, you know, the mining sector, uh, the equipment there is extremely expensive and very, very large. Um, so you get these, tend to get these big numbers. Um, but as you shift away to, um, to other parts of the economy, you're still talking about, you know, some fairly significant investments. You're talking about high tech, say, medical equipment. Um, uh, you know, and um, uh, infrastructure uh, equipment like tunnel boring machines, all that kind of thing. Um, but the thing about this is not just about machines. This is about laying the groundwork for future productivity, um, you know, building buildings where uh, people are going to go and work and so on. So does it concern you, Shane, that, you know, the, the level of capital investment um, that we're seeing, and something Scott Morrison has talked about, you know, the need to coax capital out of, his, out of its cave. Um, does it concern, concern you that um, the levels of capital investment that we're seeing uh, right now may have uh, an impact on economic activity down the track? Well, it most probably will. I mean, to get decent uh, economic growth out of an economy, you need investment. And I guess we haven't been seeing that investment to the degree that we would like. Now, we did, of course, see a mining investment boom, and that will help um, growth in mining export volumes, and that's helped um, growth in the economy more recently as those export volumes have become apparent. Um, but the lack of investment outside of non-mining is a bit of a concern. And there's, an, there's been an ongoing debate about this. Is it because companies are paying too much in dividends because that's all that shareholders want? Um, or is it because I think companies just lack the confidence they had prior to the GFC? Um, don't forget the GFC in the prior period was a bit of a shock for much of corporate Australia outside the mining sector um, because the Aussie dollar went through the roof. So 
I think you can sort of understand why parts of the economy are wary about investing again, because there's always this fear that commodity, the Aussie dollar will go back up and wipe them out again, like it did with the car industry, for example. Um, so there's a bunch of factors feeding through there. Maybe also there's a concern about uh, the government uh, um, not being able to get its agenda through, you know, revolving door prime ministers, all that sort of thing, probably not helping. Backpacker taxes. Yeah, backpacker taxes, all sorts of trivial issues that seem to dominate um, politics down in Canberra. Um, and then, of course, uh, you, could, you could say more broadly, this is a global phenomenon. It's not just Australia that's had low levels of investment pro, uh, post the GFC. Other countries have as well. And you could argue that it's just a hangover from the GFC, but the longer it goes on, the greater the risk and I, and I guess this is partly, you know, everyone's got lots of different views on Donald Trump, but a positive aspect might be that if he can spend more on infrastructure, engender more confidence through tax cuts and corporate tax cuts and a deal on companies repatriating cash overseas to America, then those things sort of might provide a bit of a kick start yeah, um, the, for the US economy. The, the animal spirits. Um... Yeah, and get the flywheel going and then it eventually keeps going on its own. Now, there's an element of that in Australia, which, of course, we don't quite know how it's going to pan out for these GDP numbers next week, and that is that if you travel around New South Wales, there's public works going on all over the place. Um, and you could argue that the giant asset swap that some states have taken up with the pensions, New South Wales, the key one, um, is a source of hope. You know, it's a fantastic model, I think, this idea of selling off proven state assets to private investors. A lot of, there is a lot of demand there, whichever way you cut it, whether it's Chinese or Australians, whatever it is, there is demand there. And then recycling that money back into public assets, which help boost spending in the economy, boost infrastructure, and therefore boost growth down the track. I, I think that's a fantastic model. Um, how do you square, we've seen this year, um, business confidence and business conditions in the monthly uh, data, uh, business confidence being very, very high, um, being at you know, multi-year highs, I think, uh, hit earlier this year. Um, it's come off a little bit. Um, but uh, you know, we talk about the gap between confidence number and the conditions being the difference between hope and reality. And the, the um, business confidence, which is basically um, companies saying how good they think the outlook is. But then we see numbers like we've seen today in terms of business investment, and they disappoint. What do you think might be going oh, it's on? It's very hard to square. In fact, I was sort of wondering uh, earlier today about this. Uh, someone sort of alluded to it, you know, what's going to get confidence going again? And, and then I think, well, actually, confidence is actually not too bad. Um, and even business, say, if you take confidence as the expectation, and then business conditions in those same surveys have been quite reasonable as well, and yet companies aren't investing. But it is, it is very hard to square that. Maybe companies... Say they, they sound okay, but they're a bit reluctant to invest. There's another puzzle here, and that is a year ago when the September quarter GDP numbers came out for last year, GDP growth was 1% in the quarter, or thereabouts, that's what it currently says, 1%. Um, over the last year, it was 3.3% for the year to the June quarter, which is very, very strong, much stronger than economists at the time expected. But what happened to profits? <laughs> they actually fell over the course of the last financial year. So as an investor, you've got to be a little bit wary here and reading too much into the GDP numbers because a year ago they were strong and that didn't necessarily translate into um, strong profit growth in the economy. Yeah, that's right. Um, I was just going to interrupt. Could the divergence be because the, the CapEx survey from the ABS cap is about 60% or so of, of business investment. doesn't include the likes of education and, uh, and healthcare, which are the two sectors that have really been humming in, from the services perspective. So I wonder if that's perhaps why you see with the NAB uh, business survey, 
although it's starting to go and come off now, confidence and conditions seem to be elevated or around average when it comes to conditions at the moment uh, compared to historic norms, but obviously that's not being seen in the, uh, in the ABS service. I wonder if that's potentially something that is not capturing everyone's view, just uh, select industries. Well, particularly when you look at um, some of the other data, so say, for example, in healthcare, if you look at wages growth, one of the big challenges for the economy at the moment, wages growth is actually reasonably strong in the healthcare uh, sector, I think up mid 2%, uh, which is um, carrying the average for um, for for this sector. Uh, it's, it's, it's doing some heavy lifting um, when we get this wages growth of around 2% uh, between public and, uh, and, pri and the private sector. So, um, so you know, clearly that is certainly one of the one of the busier areas and um, uh, and, and one of the hotter areas uh, in the economy. So um, if, you know, if, if some of the investment isn't being picked up um, through this through the capex survey in particular, um, that might ex certainly might explain some of it. Yeah, I mean, it is the case as David was saying that miss out on a big chunk of the economy here, and the capex numbers have looked dire on and off for the best part of four years now. Um, and yet the investment numbers that actually get reported in the national accounts are never quite as bad. Right. Fingers crossed for next week. But <laughs> exactly <laughs> right. So, so let's look, quickly look at, at next week. Uh, what else have we got to come in terms of GDP partials? Net exports, which is going to be a, a crucial one. So Shane, I think you said you think it's going to be a, a weaker result this time. Government spending as well. Is, uh, expenditure is going to be uh, one of the main parts that go into it as well. So. Uh, there's still a lot of hefty ones to come. And then, of course, we won't find out about um, household consumption uh, until actual GDP day, and that's going to be the biggest of all the components, so that will really hold the key. We know about a third of that has uh, been pretty weak at actually contracting in volume terms, so whether that's translated to services spending, we'll find out on Wednesday. Um, so then, just looking ahead to, there's another important thing uh, coming up on the calendar, which is uh, December 19, the government will release its budget update. Um, and there has been some talk about a potential further deterioration uh, here in the bottom line. And I remember a couple of months back on this podcast, um, I made a sort of lukewarm prediction that maybe there might be a little bit of an upgrade um, thanks to this commodity price rally that we've been seeing. Um, that basically the, the baseline projections that they had back in May for the iron ore price, they'd have to lift those maybe by five or ten bucks, which would be worth over, um, uh, over the forward estimates um, a, a few billion dollars. Um, uh, in, in, um, but um, if it looks like consumer spending has been a little bit weak, investment's been a little bit weak, um, then, you know, and that wages growth certainly um, has remained weak. This all um, feeds into their revenue profile. Um, so, uh, Shane, what do you think you'll be looking at carefully when, when this is released uh, at the end, of, uh, the end of December? Well, I'll be looking carefully at my favourite chart, which shows the um, projected budget deficit uh, <laughs> over the years um, and whether it gets back to surplus by 2021-22. Uh, by um, but what we've seen here is that uh, for every budget update since about 2012-13, um, it keeps getting pushed further and further out. In fact, I think back in 2012-13, we were supposed to be back in balance that year, and it's been pushed out consecutively from that. Um, and it's not just the timing. I, th I think Standard & Poor's have alluded to the timing. We need to get back there by 2021 to balance. Um, but they've also referred to whether there's been further deterioration, and that further deterioration needs to be offset by policy measures. Um, so that's what I'll be looking at. Um, 
it's, it's quite possible the government may adopt a conservative assumption regarding commodities. Um, so if you price in iron ore at $70, or lately it's been as high as 80 if you price in, say, $70, you'll probably end up with a much better budget projection over the years ahead than if you price in. I think their latest assumption was 37 40 or something like that. Oh, so for the, the deficit? For the yeah. iron ore price. Oh, iron, ore, iron ore price, I think, was uh, 55 US a tonne. So yeah. just off the top of my head, I think. was the previous. So, so, yeah, so, at, uh, so oh, that's over the financial year, of course. So looking at the moment, I think uh, as a guesstimate off the top of my head, it's I think it's running around about five or six bucks more than that at the moment. Um, the big kicker for commodity uh, income will be from, uh, from what's happening in coal, particularly coking coal's gone nuts, literally just through the roof uh, and that will be something that will whether they go and feed that through to their uh, to their the out years uh, of the budget I'm not really sure but uh, certainly it's been a remarkable spike but I don't think anyone in the right mind would actually think it's going to be something that will last no you wouldn't you certainly wouldn't assume that the current levels um, and there's a speculative element there in China as well as we seen in recent volatility in those prices um, but the interesting one of course has been wages I think the budget assumed wages growth of two and a half percent most recent number on the wage price index was 1.9%. Um, and so that will have to impact. The other thing that's happening is we saw this massive spike in employment a year ago, which no one believed at the time. Now we're seeing employment growth soften right off. And so that's being a bit of, bit of a drag as well. Yeah, so, we're suddenly back down to this, you know, a few thousand jobs, uh, maybe a bit more each month, rather than the 15s yeah, and yeah. 20s that we were getting fairly consistently, which was kind of the best signal you could get from the noise. Um, in the, in the, I think, I think in trend terms, uh, which is the data release that uh, the ABS is now trying to furiously push every single market's uh, participant towards when uh, they release their jobs data, I think it was, uh, it was actually negative uh, in October. Uh, which is the first time I think since 2013 that we've actually seen in trend terms employment was falling during the month and obviously we've seen a lot of the, uh, the jobs that have been lost uh, over the past year as well have been full-time jobs uh, replaced by part-time jobs and uh, we'll find out uh, when the, uh, the data is released in a couple of weeks and uh, how many of those uh, people are underemployed whether they're looking to go and work one hour or they're looking to work 34 hours which is the criteria for part-time employment but uh, it's very soft and that's leading to, uh, to weak wage growth. So um, should there be this further deterioration, as you alluded to, Shane, there's going to be need, uh, some policy response uh, required. Now, looking at what's happened in Canberra this week, um, we've been, there's been this argument over the backpacker tax. The federal treasurer stands in front of the cameras, says uh, Labour can go and jump. Um, we've struck a deal on uh, the backpacker tax at 15%. They had wanted 19. Labor had been talking about 10.5. Um, so they, they said they'd struck a deal um, with the crossbench, take it to the floor of the Senate, and surprise, <laughs> uh, uh, Darren Hinch walked away, and uh, one of the uh, One Nation uh, senators crossed the floor in his own party. Um, and uh, we're back to um, this impasse, which at the time we're recording, uh, still hasn't been uh, fully resolved. But the thing about this backpacker tax is um, the compromise that the government put forward was only the impact uh, from what I've seen uh, would have been $120 million, which is really chump change um, in, in, when you're looking, staring down a, a, a budget deficit that is looking something of the order of close to $40 billion um, for, for the fiscal year. 
Um, so, so why argue about it? Huh? <laughs> why argue about it? Let's just and move how, on to something more important. That's right. And so if you want to actually start taking meaningful action on, on changing the equation uh, in terms of revenue and, and spending um, at the federal level, uh, there's going to have to be much bigger packages um, that are going to have to you know, work their way through the Senate. And, um, and uh, at the moment, it uh, looks kind of all, all very sort of confusing, doesn't it? Well, it is very confusing. And it has been, I guess, for several years now that, that we seem to have lost our act here. Um, I, I guess I was fortunate or unfortunate enough to start my career in the early 80s. And uh, a few years after that, we had the Banana Republic speech from Paul Keating. And the thing I liked about that period was the degree to which Australian politicians realised there was a problem, told everyone there is an issue here, we've got to get this under control, and then it acted in a way to get it under control, but also set Australia up for the 25 years of uninterrupted growth we've had. So, well, oh, or sort of 25 consecutive annual years in terms of growth, the absence of a recession. Um, the problem now is that uh, that that honesty from politicians, that will to get things done um, seems to have faded. And maybe that's a change in the electorate. You know, often said, we get the politicians we deserve. Um, but I, I find that incredibly disappointing. And to, to run the risk now that we might lose our AAA rating, as we did way back in 1986, um, uh, without any um, resolve on the part of politicians as a group <laughs> to fix it up, I think is a bit of a concern. Now, now is the loss of the AAA going to be a disaster for Australia? No. Look at Italy, Spain, blah, 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 lots of other countries, the US, okay. um, UK, they have lower ratings than us and they pay less for, for borrowing. Governments do anyway, and I think the households do as well. Um, so not necessarily a disaster, but I think it, psychologically it is. It took us... Uh, it took us something like 14, was it 2000s, 2002. 2003, yeah. it was. Yeah. So 16 yeah. odd, 16, 17 years to get our AAA rating back on, on track. And that was years of hard work by the Hawke Keating governments and then, of course, by the uh, Howard Trisillo uh, period as well. And to sort of let that all unravel um, and then spend all our time talking about backpacker taxes and whether it's 12, 13, or whatever it is, uh, percent, 13, 15%, um, just seems like a bit of a sideshow. And it's a bit unfortunate that the Australian. Australian political system has not delivered in that sense. You know, we've got this referendum coming up in Italy about reducing the power of the Italian Senate. You know, there's one country I can think of which is in exactly the same position as Italy is, <laughs> <laughs> where it's become ungovernable. We've had revolving leadership since uh, the last few years now, and that, that I find very depressing. Yeah, because um, there's, there's three, I suppose, when you look at it, there's these sort of three prongs to managing this budget problem. Um, one is the overall health of the um, economy, which is um, you know, leveraged to what's going on uh, in our major, major trading partners. So what's happening in China, what's happening in the US, they actually look okay uh, in medium term. Um, then you have to have a policy, so say that's, that's okay, you need to have a policy framework which will eventually get you back to um, to, to some kind of surplus and reduce this deficit over time. Uh, and that means uh, that somebody is going to have to lose in that political uh, equation. Somebody you know, will just have to pay. Um, and then uh, on the third prong of this is then this sort of parliamentary uh, stability uh, question. Uh, and when you put these three, the three layers of that cake together, um, uh, it doesn't look like a, a you know, a, a, it's not a terribly exciting uh, 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 prospect, is it? Well, I think that's the bottom line. It's hard to see the way out for Australia. 
um, we can have another election, but then perhaps we end up with the same situation. Um, so that is a bit, uh, a bit of a concern, I think. And, and it can feed on itself because the longer it drags on and you get subpar economic performance, not that it's been disastrous in Australia, it hasn't been that bad compared to many other countries, in fact it's been quite good, but the longer it can drag on, the more it can weigh on economic growth, which then in turn feeds political instability, as you've seen arguably in Italy. And they wonder why there's no business confidence to go and actually invest or, or, or things on those lines. This is exactly the reason why they don't have that confidence. You know, it starts at the top, as the, uh, as the old saying goes. And uh, what we're seeing is incredibly disappointing at the moment. I just hope that uh, they're aware. S&P has been on the blower consistently over the last few months as well, warning about this AAA rating. They've already got us on watch negative. Uh, watching this squabbling the last day of Parliament about the backpack attacks, I wonder, you know, there's a, a small deterioration in the, uh, the budget, not only like for the, the current financial year, but also for the, uh, the years after that uh, in the MAIFO. Uh, I just wonder, if you're looking at what's going on in Canberra right now, S&P might just go, well, cut our losses, that's it, double A+. Plus. Mm-hmm. I, I would not be surprised. Um, one other thing that is going to be important uh, in the coming months um, is uh, also going to be house prices, and it might, may become a, a, quite a talking point. Um, we have uh, just seen uh, this week a very small decline in housing prices in Melbourne, led by um, apartments. Um, but maybe um, we're looking at, um, you know, Sydney, I saw the figures again this week, 13 14% um, uh, annual uh, rate of growth in, in housing prices in, in the Sydney market. Um, but maybe this thing that people have been talking about for a long time, the supply in apartments is starting to come through, a um, little bit of concern, maybe investors thinking, okay, um, you know, investors starting to peel out of the market, demand easing a little bit. Um, David, uh, you watch this very closely. Um, uh, what do you make of it? Well, for a start, the, uh, the core logic index, you know, growth moderated uh, in November, but uh, it was only because of price declines in Melbourne. As you said, it was uh, due to apartments. But everywhere else around the country, in the, excluding Canberra where they were flat, they were ripping higher. Um, as I said, uh, wrote in a quick note this morning, I said, no, they're rising briskly, to borrow a word from the uh, RBA. Um, it's interesting though, like you know, the RBA, um, Citibank, others have been warning about a potential apartment glut, specifically in Brisbane and Melbourne. Some people are talking about in, in Sydney. Uh, maybe that is starting to go and play out. But then on the other hand, you see uh, lending finance figures came out from, uh, from the ABS yesterday, or from the RBA yesterday. Uh, or oh, sorry, it was a private sector credit. And uh, they show that there was a noticeable uplift and acceleration in, uh, in lending to uh, investors, housing credit is expanding strongly again for, uh, for that particular component. So it's very uh, unusual, but overall, excluding what happened in Melbourne, there's, uh, there's nothing's really changed. The price is still rising quite rapidly. So Shane, um, what's your outlook now on the overall housing market and how might it feed into the, um, the, the outlook for next year? Well, it's slowing down. Or it will slow down, rather. <laughs> I've heard that before. Say, yeah, <laughs> and I've said it before as well. Um, I, th- I think it is losing momentum, and I think it will slow down further next year. What, pr- what Melbourne proves, because unit prices came off 3.5% mm. or something like that, um, what Melbourne proves is that you don't need rate hikes to get the property market to slow down. Now, in the past we did, but because we've had this huge supply surge in the case of apartments, I think that, that will be a weight on the overall market and my feeling is that we'll see Sydney and Melbourne uh, slow down right through next year, Melbourne probably already happening, and then at some point 
Um, we're looking at over the next couple of years, I think prices coming off in aggregate, so the core logic index, five to 10%, something of that order. People might say shock horror. Well, surprise, surprise, it had similar falls in uh, 2011 and 2000. And uh, Three. To, yeah, there's, that, there's been a few occasions over the last few years we've seen that. But more importantly, I think apartment prices, particularly where you can see a, uh, a crane, um, you're going to see falls of the order of 15 to 20%, um, top to bottom. So Melbourne's already down three and a bit, so you've got a bit further to go. But yeah, I think we're in for a pretty tough ride in the apartment side. Now, in some ways, you'd say, well, that's not too bad. Um, that should be manageable given the gains we've had. Um, it will make housing more affordable for those looking to get in, so that's a good thing. But by the same token, the flip side is that the wealth gains that we've been relying on to help drive consumer spending will go from being positive with respect to housing to now being negative, and that will take a little bit of the edge off, uh, off consumer spending. And then naturally there's the, the, the other sort of atmospheric impact of people reading headlines about, you know, apartment prices crashing, uh, you know, uh, and, yeah. um, and so there, there's the, I suppose, the hard wealth effect, then there's the, the, soft, the softer wealth effect, which is the kind of mood, well, hang on a second, my house might not be worth as much next month um, as it is this month. Yeah, there's, there's a, I was going to say, there's a huge uncertainty, I'm sorry for interrupting, there's a huge uncertainty as well as the foreign uh, investor market as well as to what's actually going to happen there. A lot of these uh, places that are being built at this point in time have been purchased by foreign investors. Uh, they're allowed to do that under the FIRB laws. Um, but Chinese uh, regulators are taking strict actions to go and prevent uh, capital outflows right now as we speak. Uh, local banks have stopped lending to, uh, to foreign investors who can't show proof of Australian income. I think the settlement risk uh, in a lot of these places coming up over the, over the next two or so years will really determine whether we see a, quite a significant price decline in units or whether you see a more moderate, you know, in nominal terms, maybe flat, real terms, maybe a little bit lower. But that's the great uncertainty for me. And certainly around where I live in Sydney, I'm seeing plenty of that going on right now with uh, things going up and then all of a sudden that uh, it will go from like, you know, 95% sold and all of a sudden that will be ripped down. And so it's just lots of little things that I'm seeing like that, like anecdotal evidence to say that maybe it's, um, maybe there's something not quite right. Certainly going to be uh, an interesting uh, budget update later uh, this month and uh, sets the stage for a very interesting uh, 2017 for the Australian uh, economy. Now you're listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia, and we're here uh, with Shane Oliver, who's Chief Economist at AMP Capital. Um, I want to quickly touch on global stocks. Um, the Trump rally, whatever you want to call it, um, appeared to be starting to uh, run its course. And then we had the OPEC meeting, um, and OPEC has um, uh, you know, introduced a cut of around 1% to global production. Um, so this sent uh, U.S. oil stocks in particular a huge uh, surge. There was some individual um, oil stocks which, you know, um, uh, tend to be reasonably uh, well well priced, but you know, t uh, five, ten, fifteen percent for for some individual equities. Um, the energy sector uh, on the ASX uh, today uh, is um, is uh, has. Um, built up a, a, a lot of uh, energy of its own. So, um, Shane, uh, what is your take on this? And uh, if I might just ask you on the equity side, um, and then also, um, is there any chance that this might, this oil, uh, this cap on oil production or slight reduction might um, uh, have some kind of inflationary um, further pulse to it uh, for the global economy? 
I think the uh, the oil price oil OPEC meeting was a good outcome. Um, first time in eight years they've cut production and had the discipline to do so. Well, mind you, the, the discipline remains to be seen. Um, do I see a lot of upside in the oil price from here? Probably not. I think around $50, a lot of US oil uh, shale oil producers come back into play with production already looking like it's ramping up over there. So that will put a bit of a cap on it. Also issues around how disciplined OPEC will be in sticking to their targets at individual country level um, remains a bit of an issue. Um, so I, I'm sort of thinking maybe up to $55 a barrel, 60%, $60 a barrel if we're lucky. Um, yes, there will be a bit of a flow onto inflation. To some degree, we're already seeing that because the price of oil bottomed out around $26, $27 a barrel uh, early this year. So as we saw with uh, US inflation, European inflation, the headline level, um, the zeros and the negatives are now dropping out and you're seeing those numbers rise at a headline level. Um, question mark is whether it flows on the core and I think that'll be more limited. But I, I think the key in all of this is that the, the, uh, the deflation fears that were around a year ago um, are now fading. Um, and when you put that together with Donald Trump providing likely some more stimulus to the US economy next year from a fiscal point of view, global business conditions indicators, the so-called PMIs that uh, we market watchers and economists get obsessed about these days, um, or going in the right direction, mostly anyway, um, even in Australia, the Australian one went out uh, as reported in the last week. Um, th those things suggest to me that this deflationary threat gradually fades that uh, you know, the Fed will continue to raise interest rates. But in terms of share markets, had a great run after Trump. I think market, share markets got a bit overbought. Um, if you look at the seasonal pattern in shares, often the first two weeks of December are flattish. Um, and it's the last two weeks of December where you get the December seasonal strength. That's when Santa Claus comes, Santa Claus rally, the last two weeks. So it's interesting. Now we've, we've got rid of OPEC, that one's over, that was no problem. Well, mostly no problem, but then we've got uh, Italy, and then we've got the ECB, then we've got the Fed. Uh, in Australia, we've got the uh, GDP numbers and uh, later on my, my IFO, the budget update. Um, but, but I think after a bit of a consolidation phase in shares, we'll then have a decent rally into year end, um, which will probably see shares end up higher than they are at the moment. Okay, so as you mentioned, uh, the question of whether Santa will be coming down the chimney with some sideline money, um, kind of uh, depends a little bit on what happens this weekend in Italy. Um, so um, it, the, this Sunday, um, that's when Italians vote, um, they're uh, voting on ratifying a law called the Italicum, which is essentially a political reform, as you uh, touched on earlier, Shane, that it's designed at ensuring more stable government. I saw a note um, this week that remind. I love this statistic. It's like the, it's like one of those mind-blown statistics, like one is... Um, that the iPhone is less than 10 years old, it only turns 10 next year. But Italy has had 65 governments in 70 years. Um, is one of my other favorite all-time statistics. Um, so Prime Minister Matteo Renzi uh, says he'll resign if the reforms aren't ratified. And this leads us to some uncertainty, including on some important banking reforms. Uh, there's a couple of um, uh, small, medium-sized banks in, in Italy that um, are, are looking under pressure. So what's the risk here? Well, the risk, the, the, the worst case is that uh, the, the no vote wins and the polls are pointing in that direction. If I want to be a cynic, I'd say, well, a lot of people say the polls were wrong prior to, up to Brexit and uh, um, Trump, and therefore if you don't believe in polls anymore, maybe you should back the yes vote in the case of Italy. But anyway, let's take the polls at face value and say they're right. Um, we get a no vote, so Renzi loses. Um, he probably offers to set 
to step down, uh, then the market will fear, well, that might cause an early election in Italy. The Five Star Movement then wins, calls a referendum on whether Italy remains in the Eurozone, and they all vote no and then leave, and then the Eurozone collapses and uh, peripheral countries see a massive rise in their borrowing costs um, in anticipation of their currencies collapsing, and that leads to a recession in those countries, which all damages Germany because it relies on these countries for its, uh, selling its exports. That's, that's, uh, the disaster scenario. <laughs> that's the disaster scenario. I, I don't think it's going to be that simple, though, because Renzi may or may not go. I think it was a political stunt saying he'll, he'll resign. I, I think he thought that would maybe push everyone to say, yes, we'll vote, vote for your reform. Um, but it's not necessarily the case that he will resign. The president in Italy, I don't think, wants to have an early election before the due date of... Uh, was it uh, 2018? So they'll likely form some of uh, There'll government. be some sort of government. They'll continue to muddle along. Um, I think all, all uh, uh, populist anti-Euro um, parties in Europe have one huge constraint, as we saw with Syriza in Greece. A year ago, if they want to retain government, more than a year ago now, if they want to retain government, they have to drop their anti-Euro rhetoric because the bulk of the population in Europe wants to stay in the Euro. Syriza did that. And they're now just another centre, centrist party in Europe. Um, the, there's another election this Sunday, which is the Austrian presidential election. I'm going to get his name wrong. Let's call him Hoffer, um, the right-wing guy. Yeah. Um, he was originally an extreme anti-Euro uh, guy, but he's had to backtrack on a lot of that because I think he realises that if he wants to win, he's got to drop that. Um, and so I think that over time, the Five Star Movement in Italy... Uh, question marks as to whether they'd even win the next election if they had one, um, but I think they will drop that anti-euro rhetoric as, you know, the rising star, or formerly rising star, uh, was it Virginia Raghi in uh, the mayor of Rome, um, five-star movement, uh, she, she's sort of a bit more pro-euro, more pro-euro, so I, I kind of think that this worst-case scenario of Italy leaving the euro is not going to happen. And I think that Europe is very different to the rest of, to America, to Britain. They never had the Thatcherite, Reaganite revolution. They haven't had, um, uh, you know, the strange swing to far right or laissez-faire economics. It's always been Eurosocialism, which, <laughs> which keeps everyone a bit equaled, equaled out, if you like. And that means they're not seeing this populist backlash to the same degree these other countries are. So if they get their migration issues under control, then I think the risks and the threat to the Eurozone will gradually fade. But to me, this is all about whenever you see a uh, collapse in Europe and everyone's talking about um, breakup, that should be seen as a buying opportunity. Right, yeah. Um, oh, look, I think it's fascinating. I did see one chart uh, this week which looked at um, support for the Eurozone within European uh, Union member countries, and Italy is um, down in the... It's on um, the borderline. It's about 53% in favour... Um, but there's a big uh, don't know category there. But the those who say no, let's leave, it's relatively small. I think it was about 20, 25, or 30, or something like that. Um, but the big one, of course, to watch is France next year uh, with Philon. Phil, how do you pronounce it? Phil, Philon. 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 Um, yeah. Philon. Yeah. The uh, the and Marine uh, Le Pen. Republican candidate. Uh, yeah, I, I think that uh, the centrist tendency of the French will, will gather around him and he'll get 70% of the vote in the final runoff and he will win and Le Pen will, uh, will lose. But Similar to what her father um, uh, yeah, ended up. Yeah, he, he made yeah. the first round back in 2002. Was, who was that against? Uh, Chirac? 
Uh, yeah, um, was, uh, was it um, Sarkozy? I can't remember. But he, 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 he did, there was a, um, there was a, he was the second candidate, it was the, the final runoff, and yeah. he was just annihilated. Yeah. Um, the, 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 um, the French, um, I think, they, look, they have a, a lot of immigration um, challenges, I think um, a lot of um, social problems that French people see. Um, this has given a platform, it, it seems to come in waves um, with um, uh, Le Pen. Um, first, uh, her father, and now, and now Marine. Um, but uh, I think what they're looking at uh, now, I think um, Fillon seems to be establishing himself as a um, conventional uh, candidate, but who's listening um, to, um, to, to the concerns. Yeah, he's going to take away a lot of her uh, support. I mean, to be, he's talking about restrictions on immigration as well. So. And I think that's a message which has been understood across Europe. Um, that they've got to try and control their borders. Maybe <laughs> a similar story in Australia. We, of course, can do it because we have a moat. Um, but uh, that they've got to uh, have a much stronger coast guard and uh, do, do the same sort of thing, which I, I guess may sound harsh, and it is harsh. Um, but at the end of the day, if you don't control that, you, you, you might end up losing the immigration policy altogether and end up with a worse outcome. So. Um, just before we uh, finish up, uh, you had a great, great note out uh, to, to clients recently on some of the common mistakes that uh, investors make, and um, uh, I, I really enjoyed it. There's one in particular, um, I do want to wrap up soon because I know uh, 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 we'll need to get moving, but um, it was number four, um, and I think particularly pertinent to, uh, to all of us on this show who come on and uh, talk about um, here's, you know, how, we th how we see things playing out. Um, but I think this was a really good, clear, um, and, and straight-talking note from you. But um, your, your note pointed out that one of the mistakes that investors make is that experts can tell you where the market is going. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm often tempted to leave that one out, but uh, then in the interest of humility, and I think if you want to be a successful investor, you have to be humble, and that includes me. Um, and the reality is that if you look at it, the age used to do this fantastically. Every year they'd, they'd survey economists from all, all over the country and then at the end of the year they'd track how those economists' forecasts for the currency have gone relative to the actual outcome. And usually it's way off. Um, and John C Kenneth Galbraith once observed there are two kinds of forecasters, those who don't know and those who don't know they don't know. Um, so I prefer to be in the, second, in, the, in the second category of that. But I think there is a reality there that forecasting is very, very difficult. And I think experts are worth listening to to get an understanding of all the issues around markets. Um, but at the end of the day, you've got to try and have some sort of process that you can feed through. And I think successful experts... Um, try and do that. I mean, in the processes we use to run our investments, we have a process. We don't rely on, Shane Oliver said, the uh, share market would be 5,500 by the end of the year, um, that sort of stuff. We don't rely on the point forecast. We rely on, on investment processes across valuations, across where you are in the cycle, the earnings cycle. Um, central banks are doing te technical indicators, sentiment and so on. We look at all these sorts of things, and I think that's the key in all of this. So, yes, you listen to the experts. You can get good value out of them, and, and they will tell you where the risks are. Um, but at the end of the day, if you want to actively manage your money, you've got to try and get some sort of process together. And that, that to me, is the key lesson from, from all of that. Um, and there's one other that um, I might um, uh, just look at quickly, and I think this has been writ large in uh, some of the moves we've uh, seen in, uh, in markets recently, but that's uh, the first one that's there, which is that crowd support indicates safety, um, which is, you know, that... Um, when, well, if everybody's 
uh, in proverbial um, crowded trade. Exactly. <laughs> well, that's that's the thing. I think uh, traders know this. Yeah. David, he just said the key statement there, and the implication is that when it's a crowded trade, you should actually do the opposite. But many investors aren't aware so much of that because they haven't been around markets as much. And I think one of the things we all like to look at is, is it a crowded trade? If everyone is long the US dollar, then that tells me, well, everyone's already on board the train with the US dollar. Who's left to buy? Um, If there's more good news to push the US dollar up, there's no one left to buy. But if there's a little bit of bad news there regarding the US dollar, then there's lots of people who can sell. And vice versa, when you're down the bottom, uh, it's always the case. When markets bottom, that's the point of maximum pessimism, because everyone's done their selling, and then you just need a little bit of less bad news or slightly better news, it goes back the other way. So... And re- another really good example we had recently was in bond market, um, yeah, which, which uh, has been, you know, for a long time, the lower for longer um, thesis has been a huge theme in that rates will be lower for longer and therefore people look for a yield and they go into these fixed income investments where they can put money where they think safe to, safely, they'll protect their their capital and they'll get a, maybe a small bit of, uh, of, of income from it. Um, uh, and of course, this became a really big theme in the last few years, um, particularly as the Fed kept uh, pushing out uh, its uh, return to uh, some kind of uh, normality at interest rates. Um, but we've seen that sort of unravel. It, it certainly has. And uh, I, I suppose a sign was that, of that was that saying that you often heard bandied about lately, that you buy bonds for capital growth and you buy shares for income. You know, normal logic had been turned on its head completely. Um, and I remember and that once was story, the top, I think. Yeah, there, there was the top in bond prices <laughs> yeah. or the low in bond yields. But yeah. um, I remember once being at a, a seminar somewhere where the uh, the um, it was a superannuation fund where the the uh, the CIO of the super fund was trying to tell investors you, you can't expect eight percent out of bonds forever because bond yields aren't eight percent anymore; they're down, down around two or something in Australia. And uh, of course, members of the audience said, that can't possibly be true. You know, it's got 8% per annum for the last five years. Of course, we'll keep getting 8% per annum. But the reality is that once the bond market turns, and if you're down there with a 2% yield, you won't be getting 8% uh, per annum anymore. So, but the, the, the problem, I guess, is that investors and people generally like to be in the crowd. It's like lemmings going off a cliff. Um, they'll think it's the right thing to do, but unfortunately it's the wrong thing. And successful investors, the Warren Buffetts and so on, they've made their fortunes by betting against the crowd. I'll just leave one thing. Like coming from like a trading background and then doing what I do now, I can say one thing for certain. If you see a lot of headlines that have been written across a whole lot of publications or you hear in the evening news about how there's blood on the streets with the, uh, the stock markets down 3% or something on those lines, that's almost always going to be right near the bottom or right near the top because... Once everyone starts talking about it, particularly when the mainstream media, the people who are not involved in financial markets day to day start talking about things, it means everyone's already aware of what's going on. And almost always afterwards, you'll see that there's generally reversal. You've been listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Our guest this week has been Shane Oliver, Chief Economist and Chief Investment Officer at AMP Capital. Shane, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been my pleasure. It's been great fun. Um, always great having you on here. Um, great to have your insights and, uh, and your straight talk. It's, it's, uh, it's terrific. Um, one thing I will point out before we go, uh, to those of you who've been listening to the show for um, the few months that we've been going now, 
uh, since about May, you may notice that we don't have a sponsor. Um, and I think uh, one of the things that we'd like to do is uh, find a, a smart CMO um, or uh, somebody who might be in a company of their own and they think that uh, this might be a good place for them to um, be associated with and partner with um, as a sponsor. Um, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au. Uh, we're on Twitter at B-I-A-U-S. Uh, I've been here with David Scott. Pleasure, mate. Look forward to it. Cheers. And we'll be back next week. Today's episode was delivered by Australia Post. They put everything behind your business, helping you save time and money. And with My Post Business, you can save at least 10% when you send on average five eligible parcels a week. Get more info and see the terms and conditions at auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast.